tonight we are continuing our journey through Acts. Um, it's been incredibly life-giving um, so far. And tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. I don't know about you, but I have had a variety of experiences when it comes to sharing my faith with those around me. I've had some unexpected and wonderful times where everything just seems to have gone really well, where people have just asked all the questions that we're just praying that they will ask, you know, the questions that allow us to simply just declare the gospel and share the invitation that Jesus has for us. And not only that, but I feel like I've actually managed to speak quite confidently and clearly and just given glory to God. But I've also had experiences where I can't believe how badly I've tried to share my faith. Where I feel like I've just said all the wrong things uh, and leave the conversation feeling disheartened, pretty embarrassed, and like I've let God down. And then, of course, there are the times that, if I'm being honest with myself, are probably in the majority where I haven't said anything at all. And I leave um, because I completely cowered away from the opportunity and stayed quiet. Maybe some of those experiences sound familiar to you. Now, thankfully, as we know, it's not through our ability or lack of that people are saved. It's through the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Only God gives the power, has the power to change our hearts. But we can live out our identity as a witness to this truth. We learn from Jesus himself that our primary calling as Christians is when he tells Peter he is going to be transformed from just a fisherman to a fisher of men. Or as it says in Matthew 28, as Jesus gives his great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For every one of us here, our calling is clear. And yet, how often can we go days, weeks even, without telling people that they have a loving father who wants relationship with them? Do you disqualify, disqualify yourself as not being wise enough or persuasive enough to speak up? Or allow the fear of others' judgment to silence you? So as we look at the passage today, we see how despite the barriers that face them, Peter and John are able to stand firm and find courage when testifying to Jesus. And as we look at how they are empowered to do this, I hope we'll be able to find encouragement today for our own lives. So in Acts 4, um, as I said, verses 13 to 22, and Peter and John have been arrested for healing a 40-year-old man who had been crippled from birth, saying to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Because of this, they've been arrested and thrown in jail and are now standing in front of the high priests, who are demanding they stop speaking to anyone in the name of Jesus. So let's take a look at the passage. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they, that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This passage is a great demonstration of how we as believers are called to stand up and bear witness to Christ. 
in all situations. And last week, Ed did a fantastic job at unpacking, unpacking the first half of this chapter, where Peter and John show us how we should witness to those around us by taking courage, speaking truth, and confronting with love. But even when we know how to do it, there can still be barriers in our way. And tonight, I want to look at a couple of the barriers we face which can prohibit us from stepping out in faith. So firstly, how we disqualify ourselves from being used by God. And secondly, that we remain bound by condemnation. So as we look at this passage, I hope that what we learn can help us overcome these challenges and encourage us to stand firm and courageous when sharing the gospel. I think most of us will have felt underqualified or lacking the necessary skills at different points in our lives. Perhaps you've started a new job and you realize everyone around you seems confident and able to do things that you have just no idea where to start. Or perhaps you're in a new relationship and trying to impress your new partner. You've tried cooking your first roast dinner despite being a vegetarian and not having much experience in roasting beef. <laughs> Sadly for Johnny, <laughs> that is a time where I have felt personally lacking not got much better either. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're going to watch a short video that went viral a while back which shows someone who finds themselves in a situation which they are not qualified for. The man you're about to see being interviewed, Guy Goma, was waiting at the BBC for a job interview to work as a computer technician when he finds himself being mistakenly interviewed on live TV with the interviewer thinking he was instead Guy Cuny, an internet expert and British journalist. So let's see how he gets on. I mean, I'm incredibly impressed at how well he handled himself in a pretty stressful situation. And we saw that he didn't even get the job, so I feel like that wasn't very fair. Um, <laughs> I doubt that that particular situation has ever happened to any of us here. But perhaps in a similar way, you have found yourself in a situation where you felt completely out of your depth to share your faith because of your ability, maybe your background, or perhaps your age. Perhaps you're still grappling with big questions of faith or experiencing doubts, and because of this, you disqualify yourself as being useful. The message of the gospel is so, incredibly, uh, is so incredible, and we can worry that our words just won't do it justice, that we would rather leave it down to the pastors and the elders because they are more qualified than us. I wonder how Peter and John were feeling standing in front of the Sanhedrin in Solomon's portico where ideas of theology and philosophy were regularly discussed by the social and academic elite. They would have been surrounded by those who believed they were the moral authority of the land. And as Luke says, Peter and John were unschooled and ordinary, which in the Greek translates to without learning and unskilled. Although they may not have been thrilled at this description of them by their friend Luke, it's true. They hadn't done extensive study. They were ordinary laborers and simple fishermen. And we can argue that they may not have even been particularly good at their own work. In the gospel accounts, Peter doesn't seem to be able to catch many fish without Jesus' help. <laughs> it's okay, Peter. The Sadducees and Pharisees were probably assuming silencing Peter and John would be an easy task. What chance did a couple of fishermen have in trying to persuade a group of educated priests on the true nature of the God that they and their people had worshipped for hundreds of years? And yet we see in this passage that these ordinary men are able to speak so convincingly and powerfully that their accusers are amazed at their courage and boldness. So what is it that equips Peter and John to stand up in the face of this opposition? It is clear from the text. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John had been with Jesus. They had been discipled by him. They had spent three years absorbing his teachings and way of life. 
and they had witnessed his resurrection. And we know that Jesus was still with them now through the Holy Spirit. This is where Peter and John's qualification comes from, from knowing Jesus. I've been in situations at church where I'm greeting newcomers, you know, trying to help them feel connected and welcomed. And I go to introduce them to someone else that I know. But as I walk them over and start to say, hey, let me introduce you to, I realize I've completely forgotten the name of the person that I was supposed to know. I know we've all been there. <laughs> and there is nothing like that internal panic as you try to kind of bluff your way around it saying, oh, wh why didn't you introduce yourself? Or, yeah, this is my very good friend. And, you know, having also been on the receiving end of this, it's pretty, normally pretty obvious that the person has forgotten your name. And I don't know about you, but I find it quite good fun kind of to decide how long do I leave it before I save them from their agony and tell them my name. This situation is often a helpful reminder that I probably need to spend some time getting to know this person better. And you know, in a similar way, the Pharisees and Sadducees, despite studying the law and the scriptures, were unable to call by name or recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't know the person that they had been studying. They were living under a legalistic belief system, believing they were qualified to know God because of their great learning and rule following. They had stopped looking for a savior because the rules had become their savior. We see this simile with Paul before his Damascus revelation. His great understanding of the Torah did not lead him to a knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. It was instead in the meeting of Jesus that he was transformed. Now, there's been a lot of talk about being unskilled, unlearned, and ordinary, so fear not all of you here tonight who are extraordinary and very well educated. This passage isn't saying that you have to be uneducated or poor for God to use you in a powerful way. Let's take a look at the apostles and disciples. Matthew was a tax collector and would have been very wealthy. Paul was a Pharisee and was educated under Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of his day. And God uses his incredible knowledge of the Torah to help establish the early church. There were many wealthy and influential women who supported Jesus' ministry and the early church. There is no discrimination when it comes to who can be used by God, because our qualification comes simply from knowing Jesus and experiencing his love. In order to go out and witness, we must first draw near to him who is sending us. So let's continually devote our time, as the disciples did, to equipping our mind through the word and spending time in his presence. One of the most powerful ways we can witness about Jesus is simply to share our testimony, that Jesus is alive and at work in our lives and the world. And it's incredible when we have the opportunity to witness, as the disciples did in Acts, about miraculous and unexplainable events, when we see prayers answered, when there seemed to be no way through, where Jesus brought hope into situations that seemed impossible, where we've witnessed or experienced miraculous healings or the breaking of addictions. But there is also power when sharing about how Jesus is at work in our day-to-day -day lives. God is at work not just in the miraculous encounters, but also in the ordinary moments. And for me, you know, it's when I've been lying awake at night overthinking about a conversation that I've had that day or worrying about finances or just feeling completely overwhelmed by what's going on in the world that when I remember to turn my focus on Jesus, he always meets me. He stills my mind and he provides peace. And if you know Jesus, you will have your own unique experiences of how Jesus has met you and loved you. Just like the disciples, let's be people who can say, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In the book of John, chapters 15, verse 4, we see Jesus' command to remain in me as I also remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we remain in Jesus through his word, his spirit and his presence, we are able to bring people to him. If you've ever felt any level of disqualification, let this be the encouragement. It is not of our own ability, but that of our proximity to Jesus that qualifies us. In all honesty, I found preparing this talk quite daunting and quite challenging and have felt all the feelings of being underqualified that I've been talking about tonight. It really has been a case of practicing what I preach. And I just want to say that God has been so kind to me when I've retreated into the quiet place with him and handed him all my feelings of doubts and fear. He has stilled them and simply reminded me of who he is. Because it's when we know his peace, his provision and his voice that we are then able to speak easily and with authority of what we too have seen and heard. So we come to the second point, which is that it's through knowing Jesus and understanding his authority over death that we can continue to overcome another of the barriers that we face, living under condemnation. How many of us here tonight live under shame, unable to truly accept God's forgiveness and listen to that small voice inside saying, you're a failure, you're not doing enough, you're not worthy to be an advocate for Jesus. How often do you let the guilt of feeling you've let Jesus down by not starting that conversation or offering to pray for someone mean that you're tempted to stop trying altogether? And the more times we fail, the more we allow this failure to define us. And we begin to live under the identity of being a failure. We disqualify ourselves because we believe there is nothing God can do with us. What I love about this passage is that we see a demonstration through Peter's life that there is no condemnation in Christ. That no matter our failings, how we have sinned, if we come to Christ and ask for forgiveness, he redeems us and can work through our lives in a powerful way. I think it is such a beautiful testimony of Christ's redeeming love that it is Peter who had denied Jesus three times that we see declaring his unwavering loyalty and commitment to God. Peter, who had vehemently told Jesus that where others would fail, he would not before cowering in the face of opposition, is now boldly declaring God's authority to those same people who had sent Jesus to die. Let's remember where Peter had been just weeks prior to this moment. Racked with shame after denying Jesus, Peter fell to pieces. And in Luke 22:62, it says that he left that place and wept bitterly. Yet at that moment, where was Jesus? He was enduring the thorns of Peter's shame and ours obliterating it with each rip of his flesh and final breath. If you have ever struggled to see God's kindness towards you, there it is. In John 21, 15, Peter meets with the resurrected Jesus. They have breakfast together and the smell of the folk would have smoke from the fire would have been permeating the air. Of all the five senses, for me, smell is the most powerful at bringing back a memory, sometimes a comforting memory, like how the smell of blown-out candles reminds me of birthdays and time celebrating with family and friends. And sometimes it can carry a more difficult memory. And I always find, you know, the smell of hospitals makes me feel sad and anxious and takes me back to when I've stayed with a sick and dying loved one. The sense of smell is so powerful and it takes us back to a living memory, where the emotions we had once experienced become very real and present again. 
And I wonder if the smoke in the air where Peter sat during breakfast with Jesus took him back to that fateful night as he sat in the courtyard by the fire and denied Jesus. Would his mind have been flooded with shame and guilt as he remembered how he had failed his friend? Had he been carrying this shame with him, weighed down by his ugly presence? You see, shame tends to overstay its welcome. It doesn't forgive or speak of second chances. Shame is quick to disqualify us. But Jesus is just as quick to reinstate us when we repent and submit to him. Jesus doesn't hold Peter to account for what has happened. He isn't quick to remind him of his past failings. Instead, he commands the disciples to throw out their nets. And as they do, they are unable to haul the net in because of the huge amount of fish. In this moment, Jesus is recommissioning Peter reminding him of the calling on his life and that with Jesus, all things are possible. And we see this reinforced again when he asks Peter if he loves him. Peter replies, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus' response is then, feed my lambs. In other words, get back in the game, Peter, because I have forgiven you. Jesus repeats the question twice more, not because he doesn't believe Peter, but because he knows Peter doesn't believe himself. And we can be assured that in that same way Jesus meets Peter, he meets us with love. When Jesus took his last breath and said, it is finished, he bore the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. In his death, Jesus breaks down the barrier of condemnation between us and God. What had once separated us through sin is now restored to love and relationship with him. You know, we see in Romans 8, 1, which says, There is therefore now no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love how Tim Keller puts it when he says, The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. When we experience the true freedom of God's grace, we can't help but want to see that grace and freedom for those around us. How his sacrifice and selfless love so disarms our own sinful and selfish nature that we can do nothing but witness about who he is and what he's done for us. And it's as we understand that we have been forgiven by Jesus' own sacrifice, our soul yearns to show that forgiveness to those around us. True freedom is understanding that there is nothing we can do that will separate us from the love of God. And if you're sitting here today and have been struggling to accept the forgiveness and freedom that Jesus offers you, then can I encourage you just to ask Jesus to meet with you as he did with Peter. He is waiting and he is ready to meet you in love. I want to end this evening with another incredible story of courage in the face of adversity and redemption in the name of Jesus. As you may know, Johnny and I trained as opera singers before coming here to FGC. And in all honesty, I'm not a big fan of watching opera, which probably should have been my first clue that opera singing wasn't really going to be the best career path for me. However, (laughs) my favorite opera and one of the most impactful things I have ever watched is the adaptation of the nun's sister Helen Prejean's real-life experience called Dead Man Walking. On a spiritual journey that brought Sister Helen to be a pen pal to a convicted prisoner called Joseph de Rocha, she found herself as his spiritual advisor on death row. 
In a later interview, Sister Helen says she found uh, she felt uncertain and frightened and in many ways felt un underqualified for the task that God had laid ahead of her. Joseph was on death row and had been convicted of the rape of a young girl and murder of both her and her brother, but despite conclusive evidence against him, was refusing to admit his crime or guilt, causing the victim's families more pain in an already unbearable situation. Despite her reservations, Sister Helen journeys alongside Joseph, meeting many different people along the way, including the victim's families, and she has to navigate the complexities of many, many different emotions. But she has a conviction that she must stay and demonstrate the love of Christ to him. It's as Helen witnesses to Joseph that she starts to see a change in this defensive and angry man, and he begins to open up to her. However, she still refuses to, he still refuses to admit his guilt and shows no signs of remorse or repentance. And it's as his execution date draws near that uh, Sister Helen once more urges him to confess, speaking of the freedom and forgiveness only Jesus can offer if he repents and asks for forgiveness. She encourages him to die with words of love instead of hate, as Jesus has done himself. And it's as he prepares to die on the morning of his execution that he finally breaks down and confesses, admitting his crime and asking for forgiveness from God. Helen meets him as Christ does, with grace and forgiveness, and says that she must look at her during the execution, and she will be his source of comfort and the place of love for him. As Joseph enters the execution chamber, he is asked whether he has any last words, and he is finally able to admit his guilt and show remorse to the victim's family, allowing them to move forward with some amount of freedom and closure. The warden then gives the nod for the execution to proceed, and as Joseph dies, he thanks Sister Helen for leading him to this place and for the love that she has shown him. Sister Helen has become a well-known and celebrated social justice. But when speaking of her experience, she maintains that this story is bigger than my life. It is to make visible what is invisible. My job is to be a servant of the story. What a remarkable response to the gospel. That our job is simply to be a servant to the story of Jesus, yeah. who willingly laid down his life for us so that we could be reunited with our Father. Mm. That as we stand at the foot of the disarmed by the sacrifice that he gave, can be asked to be renewed into his likeness and reminded that it's only through him that we are qualified and forgiven, that we can lay down our lives to be servants as he himself did and demonstrate the love of Christ for all we meet, because Jesus is their only hope and only he can save us.
Tonight, I just ask that you strengthen us and give us courage. Go out and declare what we have seen and 